attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Folks, welcome back. You're still listening to The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. We are now in overtime. That is the second half of our program where we are online only. We've gotten rid of the FCC censors, folks. This is Jacob and Adam unfiltered. We appreciate you listening to us. We're gonna finish. Um, uh, we're gonna finish talking about Medicaid. We're gonna be talking about child labor. We're gonna be talking about Tommy Tuberville, Elon Musk, trains, uh, local media capitalists. Lots of stuff. Lots of stuff, folks. So, yeah. So, Adam, what? what let's. What? What? Uh, you know. You were. You were just about to finish um, with some really flattering words about Arthur Orr. Okay, so yeah, Arthur Orr, this this real quick recap. He says we can't afford to expand Medicaid. Uh, he says the push behind Medicaid expansion is crazy. Uh, he is uh, upset that big business is lobbying Alabama politicians, uh, which is funny. Uh, I've never known him or his colleagues to be you know, upset about political posturing from the wealthy or the powerful. Yeah, this almost makes makes it seem like Arthur Orr's anti-business. I wonder how far that would go in a GOP primary. Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, I suppose, you know, a broken clock is right twice a day. And uh, every now and then, even big business interests can determine that there is a win-win solution of helping ordinary working people while also advancing economic development uh so that would be the case here um so he's upset about that uh and before i i continue there uh, i did want to just mention medicaid expansion primarily is targeting those people who fall in the gap the coverage gap folks who are working right these are not unemployed people typically these are employed people uh who make too much to qualify for Medicaid because in the state of Alabama, if you have like literally any job and you work for more than like a day or two, you're going to uh, just about hit the income limits. I'm, I'm exaggerating a tad, but only a tad. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's uh, a four figure maximum, like, you know, within a few thousand dollars is about all you can make in a year to qualify for Medicaid right now. Um, so typically the people who would be benefiting from Medicaid expansion, and it's well over a hundred thousand Alabamians, uh, those are folks who are working class. They are working. They make too much to qualify for Medicaid as is, but they don't make enough to get subsidies through the ACA or to really be able to afford health insurance. Um, and typically are working jobs where it's not provided. So Medicaid expansion would provide health care to well over 100,000 Alabamians, and it would provide a significant amount of jobs, 
It would shore up the hospitals, particularly in rural areas. Uh, it would be a massive economic development project. And not just Alabama Rise and other advocates, but even Auburn University and, and others have studied this issue very closely, right? Because this ultimately originated from the ACA over a decade ago. Uh, so it's been studied pretty closely. It's been implemented in the majority of the states in the country. Uh, over 30 states have done Medicaid expansion, including some in the South. So what we have found is that it will eventually pay for itself. More or less, that's the consensus. Uh, you know, there's some question maybe on how much upfront costs are involved. Uh, but once you factor in the cost savings that comes from Medicaid expansion, as well as the economic benefits uh, and the additional tax revenues that are created through this kind of project, it will actually offset the additional costs required by the state government. So I, I wanted to, to make sure I put that out there because, uh, yes, the tax rebate is a one-time thing uh, versus an ongoing uh, obligation. But it, when you look at the issue, it's pretty clear that the benefits so far outweigh the cost when it comes to Medicaid expansion. So one of the things that to me I find really interesting, though, about Senator Orr's framing of this, that, you know, it's just crazy talk pushed by special interest, is that it raises one of the really essential contradictions within Alabama politics. Our government is dominated by an alliance of big mules, the wealthy, powerful, big business interests, and the ideological far right. And there's a lot of overlap, obviously, in those two groups. There are at times contradictions within this alliance, though. And uh, I think Medicaid expansion is a good example of that. Here we have what is widely known as one of the most significant economic development projects that we could take on. It would help both labor and capital. It, it's a win-win. But in their commitment to far-right ideology, we're seeing a lot of Alabama Republicans, in this case, are literally willing to restrain economic development and growth in the state, while also opposing their capitalist benefactors, right? They are taking a side against the Business Council of Alabama. And that's a contradiction that we're seeing play out constantly across other states and across the national level as well within the Republican Party, right? The, the contradictions that pop up occasionally between this far-right extremist ideology on the one hand and service to capital on the other. Now, Orr did say it would cost the state two to $300 million a year for Medicaid expansion. And as I pointed out, uh, I wouldn't necessarily take that statement to the bank. Uh, he may be accurate in terms of an initial year, uh, but the research seems to, to contradict that. Uh, but even if we take, take, him, take him at his word, let's, let's assume he's right. He also said, quote, and the general fund budget's in good shape now, but it can change and turn on a dime. There's not just a lot of appetite to take on that additional cost, close quote. Now, again, this is the same guy who, who wants to do a $500 million tax rebate out of the education budget. And I also want you to keep in mind 
the research I mentioned that is going to pay for itself. Also, keep in mind what we mentioned earlier in reference to Anthony Daniels' op-ed. Alabama is 49th per capita in tax collections. So we already have a highly inadequate, highly regressive tax system. There is... You can't convince me, right, that you can't come up with solutions for this. Or also engages in fear-mongering about the federal debt, which I found to be uh, just, frankly, irresponsible. He said, quote, And we know the feds, they don't have the money in the first place. Close quote. So the, you heard it, Jacob. I hope your bosses know that. Everybody else in AFGE, I hope they know. Feds don't have the money. According to Senator Arthur Orr, Alabama can't join the dozens of other states who've expanded Medicaid because the federal government does not actually have that money. I'm sure that would be news to all those states who are benefiting from that program. Not to mention the majority of the professional managerial class in the Huntsville area who draw comfortable salaries from federal military spending and who make up probably a significant amount of his donor base, that being Arthur Orr. You know, the national debt, the federal deficit, it's a specter that is trotted out by Republicans every time there's an opportunity to use the government to help everyday people. But it's conveniently forgotten when it comes time to cut taxes, increase corporate welfare, and pile more and more money into the war machine. Interesting how the debt only matters sometimes. And of course, Senator Orr neglects to mention that you and I and the rest of Alabamians are already paying federal taxes towards Medicaid. But unlike the taxpayers of the majority of American states, Alabamians are denied the full benefits of the program. And finally, Senator Orr closes by raising the related specter of possible tax increases, right? Because that's, that's always the other part of it, is that the federal government doesn't have any money. Uh, it's just too far in debt. We can't afford to do anything else with federal dollars. Uh, and you're probably going to get additional taxes to pay for all this. There's this runaway spend. So Arthur, Arthur Orr says, quote, well, who will, well, who will be taxed to come up with another couple hundred million dollars to pay for this? Mom and pop, middle class workers, etc. Well, Obviously, uh, Senator Orr has some confusion when it comes to class structure in American society. Middle class workers, mom and pop. Okay. Uh, leaving that aside, it's the legislature's job to pass two budgets. That's it. They have, two, they have two jobs. Pass an education trust fund budget, pass a general fund budget. And what Senator Orr is telling us is that he and his colleagues are incapable of doing so effectively. They are so lacking in imagination and political will, they can't figure out a way to expand Medicaid without punishing you, the listener. And I find that to be disingenuous, at best. Here's just a couple ways off the top of my head. Come up with two, three hundred million dollars. You know, again, we're, we're going to give him the satisfaction and assume that that is accurate. Two or three hundred million dollars. Let's see. We could raise property taxes to be comparable to the rest of the Southeast. What, all, what about all these out-of-state interests that own all this quote-unquote timber? 
this timber land that's taxed at an even lower property tax rate? What if they paid the same amount of property taxes that you and I do? Hmm. We could remove the FIT, the Federal Income Tax Deduction Plan uh, that we mentioned earlier, a plan advocated by Arise, would more than pay for this. It would actually bring some equity to our tax system. We would have a less regressive tax system. We would be able to pay to we would uh, pay to cut the grocery tax, right? So most people under the plan advocated by Rise, where you remove the fit, you remove the grocery tax, you pay for Medicaid expansion, and oh by the way, most people would actually see an overall tax cut mm. because working people are being punished by the grocery tax more than they're being. Uh, helped by the federal income tax deduction that Alabama offers. So there's a few ways. Um, let's see. Alabama doesn't have a lottery, doesn't allow sports gambling, doesn't have legal marijuana. All three of those are industries that could e easily be legalized and raise significant sums of revenue, way more revenue than would be needed to pay for Medicaid expansion. We could take a look at all that corporate welfare. All these industrial projects that come to the state and our politicians who grovel at their feet, grovel at the feet of international uh, corporations, multinational corporations, out-of-state interests, hedge fund investors. They hand them anything they want, any kind of you know subsidies, tax write-offs, uh, free infrastructure, you name it. So I just came up with a few solutions off the top of my head. Now, I'm not a senator. I'm not elected to the legislature. Uh, you know, I'm not uh, someone quite as prominent as Arthur Orr. But if I could figure out half a dozen ways to come up with this revenue in the last 30 seconds, I don't know. I don't think it's a lot to ask that our elected officials could do the same. But if... If you're picking up what he's putting down, if you're if you're following Arthur Orr and you think he's right on, um, you know, I, I hope that it's working out, but from where I'm standing, it's not. If a regime of minimal taxes, minimal regulations, and generous corporate welfare met with minimum people welfare was so damn great, how exactly do you explain the fact that Alabama ranks at or near the bottom on virtually every quality of life metric that it's even possible to quantify. If there is a statistic about what life is like in a place, you can bet that Alabama's at or near the bottom of it. Doesn't matter what it is. It could be about poverty, child poverty, obesity, diabetes, incarceration, gun violence, you name it, Alabama bringing up the rear. The same politics that Arthur Orr and his colleagues are advocating, where we don't invest in the needs of working people, we just slash taxes, we slash regulations, and we only operate state government to the benefit of corporate welfare. We've been trying that approach for literally most of our state's history. That's the dominant approach to Alabama's political economy for most of our history, minus a few years here and there. And, you know, you don't have to believe that if you don't want to. 
But there's no debating that the Alabama Republican Party has had a supermajority of the legislature, the executive branch, the judicial branch, since the 2010 election. They have had total control. Alabama Democrats don't even have to show up in Montgomery. Would change nothing materially in what they can accomplish. Has the quality of life for the average Alabamian gotten better over the past dozen years? Has the logical consequences of this kind of politics, where we can afford to give tax cuts out of school money, but we can't afford to provide health care, how's that been working out? Do you feel like the quality of life has gotten better for you? So that's my question for Arthur Orr. Uh, if this approach is so damn successful, explain why the people of Alabama suffer like we do. I don't get it. And someone in the chat mentioned that, that apparently Senator Orr served in the Peace Corps when he was younger. I find that interesting. Um, you know, there's some Republicans who play the game. Uh, they're not quite as ignorant as they may sound on TV and radio. Uh, they know better. Arthur Orr knows better. He knows damn well what the research says about Medicaid expansion. He knows damn well there are so many different ways you could pay for it. I mean, hell, look at how many frivolous lawsuits the state of Alabama engages in year after year after year. Engaging in frivolous lawsuits, getting sued because we do unconstitutional things year after year after there are so many different ways you could you could find a solution to this. But the obvious answer here is they don't want a solution. They don't want more Alabamians with health care. They don't want to grow the economy from the bottom up. They don't want that. And they damn sure don't want to ever, ever imply that wealthy folks, corporations, the big business interests and wealthy, powerful elites who actually run this state, they don't ever want to imply that they might actually have to pay their fair share of taxes. That they might actually have to pay for the wealth they exploit and extract from this state. So, that's Arthur Orr for you. State senator, out of Decatur. We can't afford Medicaid expansion, but we can afford a rebate. Yeah, absolutely. Um really gross <clears throat> but he's not you know obviously he's not the only gross politician that alabama has and another one of those is tommy tuberville um boo, yeah, yes. boo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> tommy tuberville is uh you know he was elected as a republican and you know obviously as a republican he has an obligation to pretend to care about law and order and back the blue and I love cops and I love law enforcement and all this kind of stuff. Um, but we have talked about over and over and over again, how, uh, conservative pundits and politicians are only interested in enforcing the law when the recipients of the enforcement are poor people. Uh, are workers. That's the only, only, only times that they're interested in enforcing the law. 
and that they're interested in making the lawbreakers answer for their crimes. And we've got another we've got another example of that uh, just last week when here again, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders uh, showing support for Alabama workers while our politicians sneer at us. Um, so Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders sent a letter to Howard Schultz, uh, CEO of Starbucks, requesting that he testify in front of the U.S. Senate's Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee to answer for his illegal union-busting activities. And this is obviously the case that he has, co- he has broken the law. He has directed his company to violate our federal labor law. This is indisputable, absolutely indisputable. And it's happened even here in Alabama. Alabama has 85 Starbucks stores, and we wrote about we wrote about this actually on our website, TVLR.fm. You can go to the article section and Haley Zarnick. Uh, from uh, an, an organizer with the Campus Workers of America, CWA. Uh, uh, United Campus Workers, CWA. So definitely uh, check the article out. There's going to be some stuff in there that we don't actually go over. But, you know, Alabama's got 85 Starbucks stores, and two of them have held union elections. Both of them won, but only after uh, significant retaliation from the company. And since the elections, they've faced significant retaliation from the company. At the Starbucks store, two organizers were fired just before balance went out, while others at both the Scottsboro store and the unionized Birmingham location faced hour cuts and schedule changes. The Birmingham Starbucks workers faced terminations as well, and one of those terminated organizers, former shift supervisor Kyle McGuckin, was fired in October immediately after returning from paternity leave. McGuckin had been organizing publicly for months. He talked to us on the program. And he was denied his wine garden rights while they requested a union representative be present for the meeting in which they were terminated. Uh, and so, you know, that's a violation of labor law. When a worker is facing termination or is facing any kind of discipline, they have a right in a union workplace to have a union representative there. And uh, Kyle McGuckin, they were not allowed to uh, have their union representative. And it's just, uh, you know, all of this is just so flagrant. But obviously, obviously, Alabama Starbucks workers aren't the only people seeing this kind of illegal uh, retaliation. And uh, in fact, in some places, it's been worse. Uh, Starbucks workers united the union that uh, most of these organizers are are, uh, unionizing with. They say that over 100 workers across the country have been fired in retaliation and that the hour cuts and schedule changes that Alabama Starbucks workers are seeing are part of a national campaign to try to demoralize the workforce. Just on the other side of the Alabama-Georgia line, a vocal pro-union worker was fired for tweeting that he was told to work while testing positive for COVID, which is all facts. Which is all facts. He was testing for COVID. He tested positive. And he, he was unsymptomatic. He felt fine, but he was testing positive for COVID. And he told his employer, his boss, he was like, I probably shouldn't come in. I'm still testing positive for COVID. And, you know, uh, like... As a Starbucks customer, I do not want asymptomatic, asymptomatic COVID positive people serving me coffee. Okay, like I just don't want that. I don't want that 
as a customer, and I would assume I was I, I I don't want a person with a cold, not even just COVID. I don't want a person with a cold serving me coffee. And I assume that most Starbucks customers, most customers of any retail restaurant, uh, of any of any uh, you know uh, clothing store, anything where you have to deal with the public. We don't want to interact with people who have contagious diseases, like <laughs> like that we can catch, right? Like I just don't want that. I don't want to get sick going into Starbucks. And so he tweeted that he was like, "Hey, you know, basically, you might, you know, y'all might want to stay away from the store today. Y'all might want to stay away from the store today because I've got COVID and they're making me come in. They're saying that I'll be fired if I don't come in. So I'm coming in. You might want to stay away." And he was fired for that. Fired for tweeting the truth. Fired for his speech. Elon Musk hasn't said anything, funny enough. We're going to talk about him later in the show, too. In Tennessee, seven workers were fired at just one Memphis location. Uh, the group came to be known as the Memphis Seven, and they were ultimately reinstated with the final decision coming from a Trump-appointed district court judge. A Trump-appointed judge, okay? So, like, there's no dispute here. They're obviously... Starbucks is acting out of pocket. They're over their skis. They're out kicking their coverage, okay? Um... But they went eight months without their jobs, right? And that illustrates the, you know, uh, the imbalance of labor law. The National Labor Relations Board, uh, they've also accused Starbucks of illegally withholding raises and benefits from unionized locations. Um, and they have repeatedly asked federal courts to issue a nationwide cease and desist order against the company that they just got a couple days ago, actually. Maybe it was yesterday, even. Wow, yeah, I, I wasn't aware that they finally yep. got that granted. Yep, yep, yep. A Michigan judge, I think it was a Michigan judge, that issued a nationwide cease and desist order. Uh, so I'm not sure what, uh, uh, to s telling them to stop stop firing um, union organizers in retaliation for their organizing. So that'll be good, and, and we'll hopefully look to see some pretty substantial injunctions and, and penalties coming from violation of that uh, yeah, cease and desist order. Absolutely, because, I mean, there is such a double standard. Right. Such a double standard. So, but, you know, so look, all of this to say, all of this, this, you know, list of, you know, the stats and the nationwide numbers and the individual stories, all of this to say Starbucks is guilty of violating the law at a systemic level. At a systemic level, right? This is not just a one-off thing. One Starbucks manager at one location was ideologically anti-union and they were like way, way over their skis, right? No, this is systemic. This is nationwide. This is set a policy set from the top at the direction of CEO Howard Schultz. And so Bernie Sanders says, you're breaking the law. We're not a country if we're not a country of laws, right? We're not, we can't have a country if we don't obey the laws. You know, he wasn't saying it exactly like that. Uh, but, you know, that's basically the thing. You're breaking the law. You need to explain to us, the people who wrote this law, this federal labor law, you got to explain to us why you continue to break the law. And every Democratic member of the Senate health, education, and labor, and pension committee signed on to this letter request. Uh, Tommy Tupperville did not, despite the fact that this affects his constituents. This does. It affects his constituents. He did not sign on to the letter, and he did not respond to multiple requests for comment from myself and Haley for the story. 
because he just doesn't think he just doesn't think it matters. It he just doesn't think it matters what happens to working people. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about us. He doesn't care that you don't care. Yeah. So, you know, really pretty gross stuff from Tuberville, uh not even, you know, explaining to his constituency the uh um to to his constituents his reasoning for not caring about a uh, about holding accountable a flagrant criminal just a flagrant criminal i um, i just you know you saying that imagine for a second tommy tuberville had a formidable democratic opponent for his next election i know uh that's quite the stretch of your imagination uh, to imagine that he might have a formidable democratic opponent in the next election but let's just assume he, he he does if that democratic candidate repeatedly came to the aid and service of a flagrant criminal i feel like tuberville's campaign would make something of that uh in fact being soft on crime mm-hmm has been a Republican uh, talking point and uh, strategic focus. You know, labeling opponents as soft on crime is something they've been doing uh, since before either of us were born. Right. But that's that double standard. You know, it's CEOs have one standard. Working people have another. When working people commit crimes, we get beat up by the police, we get thrown in cages, all of our money's taken, and maybe we'll get out. Maybe we won't. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we see we see how many people never make it out of jails and prisons, particularly in Alabama. Right. But CEOs, they get to commit crime sprees, yeah. and they have sitting senators come to their service. Right. A corporation's considered a person, right? Corporations are people according to the Supreme Court, means they can give unlimited amounts of money to campaigns. But do corporations ever get the same consequences as people? No. When's the last time a corporation got a death penalty? Mm. I mean, I'm shocked that there's apparently a cease and desist that actually is coming down the pike against Starbucks. But yeah, the, like you mentioned, what, what are the penalties going to be? What are the injunctions going to look like? How is it going to look in comparison to the way working people are treated? Yeah. But, uh, you know, so that that letter was a request. It was not, you know, legally binding at this time. And Starbucks has responded denying the request. Uh, They said in a statement, Given the timing of the transition, his relinquishment of any operating role in the company going forward, and what we understand to be the subject of the hearing, we believe another senior leader with ongoing responsibilities is best suited to address these matters. And no, that's just... Silly. Of course, this is, uh, uh, you know, of course, it's all a lie, right? They don't actually believe what they're saying. But to address what they're saying, the hearing is as much to be backward looking as forward looking. Explain to us your rationale for willfully and repeatedly violating federal law over the last year, year and a half. Why have you done this? Why have you directed your company to do this? Sure, there's going to be an interest in what the plan is going forward, but we want to know, you know, he needs to answer for his crimes in the past. 
And nobody is better to answer to that than Howard Schultz. You know, obviously, you know, it's almost silly to respond to the thing because because they know it's a lie and you know it's a lie and I know it's a lie. But just to address it for anybody that doesn't. Yeah, I mean, listen, if either of us at our day jobs were committing crimes, we couldn't just say, well, you know what? I'm actually leaving this job. Someone else is going to take over. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to go to court. But yeah, yeah. No. I mean, it's all ancient history, right? I yeah. mean, someone else is. T- I'm retiring, so whatever. Uh, yeah, I don't think it works that way for working people. No, it doesn't. And uh, so Bernie Sanders hinted that they would be issuing a, sus- a subpoena. He said one way or another he will be there. Uh, but as you know, that's not the decision of the chairman alone. So I'm not exactly sure how you go about issuing a subpoena. How many people have to support the subpoena? Um, but undoubtedly. Tommy Tupperville will not support the subpoena, um, but we'll ask him. We'll ask him if he'll justify his, you know, his uh, silent support for lawbreakers. Um, but you know, we'll see. We'll see what we'll see what happens, uh, and look forward to hopefully Howard Schultz being subpoenaed. Yeah, definitely want to see that happen. And uh, y'all check out Haley's article. Yes. Um, and we appreciate Haley's uh, uh, Haley's article. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, ho- hopefully by this time next month, the website will be even more polished and, and easier to find articles like that. But yeah, great job with that, Haley. And uh, Tuberville, you suck. So uh, child labor has been something that we've been covering quite a lot on the program. Just uh, really, really, you know, so many instances and and examples and and reasons why (laughs) our society is sick. Um, That, you know, child labor is such a such a common issue, it seems like today and the year of our Lord 2023. It's it's super, super weird. Uh, But the New York Times has a uh, has a new report out. On uh, Packers Sanitation Services Incorporated. One of the largest food sanitation companies, this is from the article, in the United States, illegally employed at least 102 children in dangerous jobs cleaning meat packing and slaughtering plants. The Labor Department said on Friday the company paid a $1.5 million penalty on Thursday after an investigation found that children ages 13 to 17 had worked overnight shifts at 13 meat processing plants in eight states, mostly in the South and the Midwest. The department said the children had used hazardous chemicals to clean processing equipment, including back saws, brisket saws, and head splitters. Its investigators learned that at least three miners had been injured while working for the company. Under the Fair Labor Standards Act, the Packers was uh, Packers. The company was fined fifteen thousand one hundred thirty-eight dollars for each illegally employed child, which is the maximum civil monetary penalty allowed under federal law. That's bizarre, just absolutely bizarre. Some researchers have criticized the civil monetary penalties, which are set by Congress, as woefully insufficient to protect workers and to deter employers from violating labor laws, which is obviously the case. Some of the children experienced experienced caustic burns and other injuries, the department said. One 14-year-old who worked from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m., five to six days a week, suffered chemical burns from cleaning machines used to cut meat, the department said. School records showed that the child fell asleep in class 
or missed class because of the job at the plant, the department said. What a sick society. What an absolutely gross... I, you know, I mean, what else, what else can you say about that other than just revulsion and, and, and disgust that, you know, like, I, you know, I don't have any other commentary other than just to remind people that some people, you know, I'm reading this story, you're hearing this story or have read this story and you're thinking, what the hell what evil people, you know, like you're just, you're reacting like a human, you know, you're, you're not just an evil animal, right? Uh, but there are evil people among us and they're reading the story and they're thinking, oh, the only issues are the, the only issues are the regulations. These people, they're working, these children, a 14 year old child working 11 PM to 5 AM and then going to school. What a good work ethic. We need to, we need to incentivize that kind of behavior. More children should be working from 11 PM to 5 AM. That's the kind of, that's the kind of shit that some people are thinking as evidenced by Iowa, Iowa Republican Jason Schultz, uh, putting forward legislation to legalize exactly that kind of thing. Allowing children as young as 14, his legislation would allow children as young as 14 to work in coal mines. I mean, it's like, how, how do you, uh, I, you know, I, I, it, it's just so, it's so bizarre because I know, I know rationally, surely this guy isn't just sitting at home like smoking a cigar being like, oh, it's so great to be evil. But, you know, I mean, presumably this guy is like nice to his children and he's like, I don't know, he shakes hands with people. But how, you know, I, it's so difficult to understand how somebody could either write this legislation or pick up this, you know, copy of industry drafted legislation and put your name to it and not feel like, and not feel bad, but he must, he can't feel bad. He can't, he surely must have justified this to himself in some way, but I don't understand how. I don't understand how. It's so, it's wild to me. It is so, it's so wild. I imagine you have some, you know, there's probably a Venn diagram with a lot of overlap and the two circles would be, the ideological types and the just the non-caring types. The the non-caring types would put their name on this kind of legislation because they don't give a shit because it's not their kids. Right. Of course. His and frankly, kids even if it gonna... was their kids, they probably yeah. still wouldn't give a shit. But they certainly don't give a shit about these other people's kids. As someone in right. the chat put, you know, it's often migrant kids anyway. Right. So damn sure don't care about them. Right. And then you have the ideological types who probably have done some mental gymnastics and in their brain they have convinced themselves that the ends justify the means because it'll make the lines go up on the graph and therefore the market will do better and the, everyone's going to be better off because capital will be happy. And in their head they've convinced themselves that you know that's just the way we got to do it. We all live at the service of, of the ruling class and uh, – you know, the best way to make the best of it is just give them what they want when they want it, how they want it. 
Yeah, we've got uh, Mr. Anderson in the chat wanting to roll back time to the good old days. And William says, if we're rolling back time, hopefully workers will start threatening to burn down the factory again like the good old days. Indeed. In Minecraft. In Minecraft. I don't know if that's a TOS, but in Minecraft, certainly. Um, it's But it it is. Yeah. It is a return it's, to the Gilded Age. It's definitely a return. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, super wild. We have wild. Gilded Age levels of inequality. We have Gilded Age levels of monopoly power. Uh, we have the child labor making a, a comeback. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here's the question. Are, are we going to see a populist movement make yeah. a comeback to fight back against this shit? Uh, are we going to see some interracial people power yeah. build a movement big enough? And I think that the labor uprising we've seen over the last year or two could be could be the inklings of that you know we'll see so here here's here's a question that i want to you know on to the next topic my question is why should working people trust media that is run and owned by folks that hate us Today I'm going to be talking about Scott Buttram, owner of the Trustville Tribune. But, you know, no doubt, obviously, you know and I know that there are ghouls at the top of these companies, uh, whether they're locally owned or internationally owned, that they've got the same feelings that this guy has. But Scott just up and said it, and in public, uh, his contempt for working people who get too uppity. And uh, I've got a couple public statements in mind that we're going to go through and some stuff that he said to me uh, privately. Uh, and, you know, um, so so let's start with this. Let's start with this. Let's start with the Warrior Met stuff. We spent some time earlier in the program on the Warrior Met news, and he saw this. Scott Buttram, owner and publisher of the Trustville Tribune. And he had a reaction that's pretty different from ours. He tweeted out, he quote tweeted the AL.com's article about this news. And he said, So these workers lost $200,000 for nothing. Union strong with a laughing crying emoji. Um, and like, what an evil, ghoulish thing to say and do. To just laugh at the suffering and the sacrifice of our people. Laugh at the suffering and the sacrifice of of people, just generally. Like, why would you take pleasure in the suffering of others? You know, it's it wasn't even it's not even like a an ideological thing. It was he was just laughing at these people's suffering. And so, you know, I replied on Twitter and I also, but I also reached out to him privately as well to express how gross I thought that was. And, you know, I, uh, you know, I probably, or I did, and I, I meant to burn the bridge there because what a gross, what a fucking pig, right? But I, because I reached out to him privately though, because he had previously treated me with some amount of respect and... So I half thought maybe this is like a half decent guy who's like conservative and and wealthy, but like interpersonally, maybe he's like a, you know, like he's just like the people that I know in my life, right? That are conservative, but are, I would say, good people, you know? 
uh, and because we we had a conversation, we had a long conversation actually in the Trustville Tribune uh, that was meant for both of us to co-publish on both of our platforms. He has not sent me the files, nor has he released it on his end, as far as I can tell. And I don't know why, because I don't think it was a particularly embarrassing conversation for him. I don't think, you know, I I don't think that I I feel like I made my points well and. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not an idiot, right? And I'm general, you know, I, I speak decently in front of a camera, you know, but I don't think that I just absolutely destroyed him and dunked on him and that if his audience sees this, they will be, you know, converted to unionism and hate him, right? I don't think that's the case. And so I don't know why he hasn't, maybe he just, I, I don't know. I don't know. It was weird because after the conversation, you know, he, he, he spoke, you know, he was like, you know, I feel like I've you know, gained a friend and, and, you know, somebody that I respect with different opinions. And, you know, I love seeing young people. I love seeing young people that are active. Even if you disagree with me, I just love seeing young people that are active. And, you know, it just gives me hope for the future, blah, blah, blah. All this, all this bullshit. Just, just, you know, blowing smoke up my ass, right? And, you know, I have believed it because I, you know, I'm a sucker for flattery. But, um, (laughs) <laughs> so I reached out to him privately because, you know, we had this previous relationship to express how gross I thought it would. Because I did, that's gross. That's not just having a different opinion than me about the value of unions and collective action. And right. I mean, that's a and, and you know, I was talking to you, Adam, yesterday about this and and sitting here wondering if. Like, it's maybe just a character flaw that <laughs> that I can get along with people that have different opinions on me than me about other issues that are of no no doubt important to other, you know, like I can have a friendly relationship with somebody that is anti-abortion because that's like my whole family, right? <laughs> and, you know, it's w- one way to see that is that it's, e- oh, you know, it's easy for you not to have stake in this because, you know, you're not a woman and you don't, you know, but... Like, my family who is anti-abortion, or my family who is ideologically anti-union, or my friends that are, you know, ideologically, like, anti, you know, Medicare for all or something like this, they, like, they believe, it seems to me, that their ideas would bring about the best for the most people, right? And we just disagree about that. But where there is evidence of of people being harmed, I don't I don't think they like rejoice in that. You know, like if they when they see when they see these these stories about these people that are that are um you know uh uh harmed by not having Medicare for all, I don't think they like laugh at it. When they see these stories about people who you know are not allowed to get abortions because of a law and that inflicts some some amount of suffering on it i don't think they laugh at that um you know you know but this guy is is laughing at these people for for you know for losing for having lost a battle and and no doubt they suffered for it they no doubt lost uh you know Probably two hundred thousand dollars that they could have made if they hadn't gone on strike, potentially, right? And so this is a big loss for these people. 
and he's laughing at them. And so that just seems qualitatively different to me than just having a different opinion about the effectiveness of unions or this or that or the other thing. So I was really like grossed out by it. And I let him know. And then he comes back at me with like just more evidence that this is a like this is a bad person, you know? Like he comes back at me with showcasing his ignorance about the subject. He was like, oh, you know, keep losing. That's a great strategy. Keep failing workers. Take workers out on strike a month after a new administration uh, uh, kills the demand for coal and expect it to work out well. And that's just totally the opposite of what happened. Like, he just, he doesn't have the first clue about this strike. He doesn't have the first clue about these people. He doesn't have a first clue about this company. He doesn't have a fir the first clue about the dynamics and why the strike failed. He doesn't have a uh, nothing. He knows nothing about this. Absolutely not a thing. And he's laughing at these people. He's laughing at our people. He's laughing at his people, right? These are Alabama workers that fought against not our people. International private equity firms, leeches, people who don't do the work, who are taking from them and ask them to give up more after they sacrificed and saved the company, right? And he's laughing at them losing. And then, you know, the, the, the final thing, thing he said, after I explained this to him, and I explained how actually in that conversation that you haven't released yet publicly, which is weird, I explained all this to you, so now not only are you ignorant, you're willfully so. You're just a rube. You are a, a you are not an intelligent or caring person about this. Like you don't know anything. And then he said, you know, two years, nothing. Unions are for losers. And so, like, this is just this is a guy who just has a deep contempt for working people who get too uppity. Just a a deep, deep, like, uh, uh, what's guttural, visceral hatred for when working people stand up for themselves. And, but, you know, I mean, look, you know, he's a capitalist, right? He's a capitalist. He's an owner. He profits off of the labor of others, right? And so, you know, it makes sense. It is in his material interest to have this visceral feeling and he's the guy who likes to consider himself one of the good ones, too. In our conversation, he talked about how, oh, yeah, well, you know, the Trustville Tribune was failing. And, you know, I just felt so bad for our community, you know, trying to make his investment decision into some into some like high minded whatever. Right. Like, oh, you know, I just, I just felt so bad for the community losing our local paper after so long. So I, so I bought it. I bought it and I kept it I, and I kept it running and you know we're you know we're doing better now than ever and whatever and and I'm so proud of blah 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 right trying to make his investment decision into this moral thing uh so this episode obviously showed that he has a deep contempt for working people and so like how why should we trust the Trustville Tribune to be fair to working people. Why should we trust? And this is another thing. Another thing to just show that he's just an idiot. He's never thought about the role that he plays in media. 
for even a second because he said one of the things that he was going to take away from our conversation that hasn't been aired publicly for some reason. One of the things he was going to take away is that I told him it's political what stories you choose to publish because he was talking to me about, oh, you know, one of the things that's wrong with news nowadays is people always put a spin on it. People always put a spin on it. So I just want to give people the facts and let them choose, let them decide, blah, 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 right? And so I told him, I was like, you know, look, even let's say that every time you report on a story, which this is almost certainly not the case, especially knowing him now. But let's just even give him the benefit of the doubt. Every single time he reports on a story, he gives the reader every relevant fact about the story. The choosing of the story is political. It is political, your emphasis. In fact, that's probably the most political thing that a media organization does, is what emphasis they choose to have. So if you choose to highlight the story about a cop saving a kitten from a tree instead of a story that broke the same week about a cop murdering a guy or about a cop in your county freezing a prisoner to death or about a prison guard burying the body of somebody who died in prison and not giving the body back to their family, right? This is all political. What you choose to emphasize is political, right? And he's, he said, just galling, galling to me. He said, I've never thought about that. Oh, wow, that's an, in, you know, I'm going to take that away. That's something that I'm really going to chew on. What do you mean that's something you're going to, you own a damn newspaper. <laughs> like what? That's crazy. Crazy, this guy. And so another thing that he did a few weeks before is that I, uh, he follows me on Twitter, and so he sees some of the things that I, that I post, and so I saw that my union posted and, and had speak one of the Memphis Seven, uh, one of the seven Starbucks baristas who were fired for their union organizing, um, and so she spoke at my union, the American Federation of Government Employees, our legislative convention last week in D.C. So I was really proud of that. I was like, that's really cool. I'm really proud of my union for highlighting the work of this young organizer, lifting her up. Um, you know, that's just, that's really cool. So I, I tweeted it and he found the same tweet and he quote tweeted it. And he said, the Starbucks union, protecting employees from the workplace hazard of espresso machines and coffee makers. And it's like, here again, in the same way that he's like laughing at the suffering of coal miners, which is a culturally, you know, uh, ostensibly coal miners are a culturally resonant demographic for his ilk, for conservative people, you know, ostensibly, unless they get too uppity. But here we've got a barista who is not a uh, uh, somebody who, who, you know, his ilk thinks highly of, even though they are also workers, and even though they are also, you know, face issues in the workplace, right? Um, he, you know, reacted with contempt to the idea of her standing up for herself and, and fighting for herself and her co-workers. And, you know, this isn't something necessarily that I would have said maybe while we were on better terms, but the, when I saw that, the thing that I immediately thought was I remembered him 
blowing smoke up my ass about, you know, oh, you know, we don't agree, but it's nice to see somebody so active, blah, 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 right? And here is this young black woman doing the exact same thing as me, but better, right? I've never been invited to an international unions convention to speak. Uh, I haven't been fired for organizing and then been reinstated. You know, I mean, she's just objectively done more than I have in, in, in at least certain things, but in the same field. And so, you know, he's like, oh, you know, you're so active, blah, blah, blah. And here's this black woman doing the same thing. And he's ridiculing her. Like, how is that not both contempt for working people, but also like racist as hell? So anyway, what a gross guy. What a gross pig ghoul. What a gross guy. And so how is it that we're supposed that, that we are supposed to trust media when it's folks like him running it? And it's and of course he's not the only one. You know, you like, do you not think that the people at CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and even AL.com, the venture capitalists that own AL.com, these people, they all hate us. And that brings us to the next thing, uh, you know, another critique of, of some local media, but, but a bit more friendly. Um, you know, Kyle Whitmire is a, uh, is a local opinion columnist and he, uh, uh, you know, and he, he's like a liberal and he's done some good, I mean, is he's done some even good journalism stuff just aside from his opinion stuff. Um, I mean, right, Adam? Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, he's he's done some good work, and, and in fact, <laughs> he's done some work in the past year or two on Alabama history that mm. I was very appreciative of. You know, to see like the Ufala massacre and the populist coalition and the racist counter-revolutionary 1901 Constitution to see that out in mainstream media in Alabama was you know was good. Love yeah. to see it. I mean, very appreciative of that. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, I don't agree with Kyle Whitmire's politics, but he's done some good work. And what's wild to me is how you can do some of that work, and clearly it's not all clicking, right? It's not <laughs> right. all sticking with you. Right. Uh, maybe, maybe that's just because I'm not one of these media guys, and so... I don't know. Maybe they do a story and then it literally like all leaves their brain the next week. Maybe. I don't know. Um, well, you had this new op-ed out. That yeah. Just, yeah. Oof. Yeah. Well, you sent me this uh, last week and it, it's just so, so weird. I mean, it, it's, it's the epitome of like the, the failures of liberalism, the, uh, right. the limits of liberal imagination. Um, and I think it even exposes to some degree the, the critique of liberals and in, in their supposed snobbery and mm. condescension. I think it speaks to that too. Yeah. Well, ex ex explain to us what this, you, you, I mean, I've read the article, but you probably, yeah, you have a better so sense of it than I do. Kyle has been writing a little bit about, uh, Birmingham Southern College and that was sort of the the um 
I don't know, the hook for the article, it was in reference to Birmingham Southern College, and he's having this conversation with the president of the college who uh, brings up Henry Clay Frick and the Frick Museum. And more or less, it's a it's an opportunity to talk about, you know, here's a theme of today's show, The Gilded Age. Uh, <laughs> it's talking about the original Gilded Age and those rail barons such as Frick and uh, Carnegie, Mellon, J.P. Morgan, those folks. And he's talking a little bit about them. He talks about Alabama's wealth being controlled by out-of-state absentee landlords. And I thought, okay, right on. We're, we're, we're getting somewhere. That's true. That's, that's 100% true. Uh, he talks a little bit about um, in the Panic of 1907, New York bankers um, getting uh, the Birmingham steel industry basically under their control. Uh, U.S. Steel and the New York bankers are able to take over the Birmingham steel industry. And there was an interesting quote. He said, from then on, Birmingham was a satellite taking orders from absentee owners up north. The Magic City was obliged to serve as owners in New York. Okay, all right, I'm following you. Uh, not a lot has changed. That's a big part of our uh, our model here in this state, is that other states and other countries, uh, capitalist interests from those places, exploit and extract wealth from our state. But where it really, this, this just goes off the rails uh, a little bit later. He, he mentions that most economic major, most economic projects uh, that have been like big time in Alabama in the recent decades have all been manufacturing jobs, which he says are better than no jobs at all. But at some point, there's a limit. Okay, you know, again, yeah, I, we're still we're still I'm not same, disagreeing yeah. necessarily. Um, he mentions that we supply the labor and the tax breaks. Sometimes we supply the raw materials. Okay, he's really you know he's getting at something here. He's talking about the extraction of Alabama wealth. Um, the jobs we create here, though, have a limit to how high they could go. Stock options and bonuses are mostly for people who live in other states, if not other countries. In Alabama, we have made our economy subservient to absentee landlords. Boom. Hell yeah. You're right, Kyle. You're 100% correct. <sighs> yeah, and then... Now I'll read this. I'll read this, and I'll let you respond. Okay. But it's time to take notice of something in this state. Something our elected leadership must make a priority. We have to grow Alabama businesses in, in, into national or international companies, not just settle for the generosity of out-of-state landlords. See, we shouldn't just settle for the generosity of out-of-state landlords. We, we should, should settle for the generosity of our homegrown home landlords. landlords. What if Alabama was exploiting Mississippi? What if Alabama oh was the headquarters gosh, of these national and international evil corporations Alabama's spreading misery across the earth? What if Alabama was home base, right? Alabama's corporate community is pretty much the power company Alabama's corporate community is pretty much the power company, and every state has one of those. And heck, our power company is just a subsidiary of a Georgia-based company next door. Birmingham doesn't have a Coca-Cola. Mobile doesn't have a Home Depot. Huntsville doesn't have a Delta. Alabama doesn't have a Disney. 
The simplest explanation for much of the poverty we have in this state is that we haven't got any rich people to live here. By the way, he links to a, a Wikipedia map that shows you how many billionaires live in each state. <laughs> That's the problem with Alabama is we don't have a billionaire within our... That's the issue. No one with wealth to call Alabama, Alabama home, he says. The So you, you, you identify... A real <laughs> phenomena about Alabama's political economy. One of the most constant trends in Alabama's political economy. This this absentee landlord aspect, the aspect of our wealth being controlled by out-of-state interests. Uh, and you get to this point, and your logical next conclusion is, well, the problem is the rich folks and the evil corporations don't, they don't live, live here. here. They don't live here. If they lived here... Maybe some of this country fried wealth would trickle down, right? Maybe if they had a southern accent, maybe if they also liked sweet tea and biscuits like we did, and maybe if just maybe their gated communities were somehow within the borders of Alabama, some of that wealth would trickle down. That's what you come up with? We need our own homegrown bourgeois? That's wild. We'll be better and off? And that's, that's Scott Buttram. That's our homegrown bourgeois. They are no better. And in fact, in fact, we could even say that Scott is, is in some ways worse than the others because he just, you know, these other people, they don't, you know, they have the sense to not be so public about their contempt for us. Yeah. Scott is just, he just, he's just out there with it. It's just, it's just crazy to me because I think he, he's, I mean, the homegrown capitalists that we have in this state have always existed mm -hmm. and they have always aligned with these out-of-state landlords and interest and right. multinational corporations right because that has been the deal alabama functions much like an imperialized country much like a colony we function in reference to you know american capital much that way right so just just as the same as panama has its own local capitalist elites who, by the way, you know, subsist mostly on their alliance with out-of-state corporations and out-of-state or out-of-country capitalists. It's the same kind of concept here. But it just blows my mind that you can identify. So well. You can identify what's going on here. You can see it. And you can write these very well-written articles talking about the original Gilded Age in Alabama and the response of people. Interracial people power rose up against the big mules in Alabama. White people and black people in the 1800s in Alabama together fighting for a better state. And we experienced a counter-revolution here where an election was stolen, real election fraud, they stole the governor's mansion, and they imposed a racist, backwards constitution on us in 1901. And Kyle has written pretty well about that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and you're you you that's the conclusion you come up with. As if you didn't learn from from that. I mean, do you not yeah, I mean, see the that there were local oligarchs in Alabama? It was Alabama oligarchs who imposed that constitution on us, right? It wasn't just their benefactors in New York and London. It's right. it's really wild to me. I mean, 
Yeah, yeah the problem if only is we had corporate headquarters here. Right. If only billionaires wanted to live here. The yeah, that the the problem is not just to make it explicit that the billionaires don't live here. The problem is billionaires. Right. <laughs> we should not we should just the problem is not that oligarchs don't live in New Hope, the problem is that there are oligarchs. The problem is that there are people with that much wealth. There, the, the, that is the problem that we cannot democratically save a local college that is dying. The problem is that we cannot take the value that we create to do what we want with it. Yeah, I mean... The idea, of, you know, that's the problem. We just don't have any rich benefactors that live here. You know, if only we had some of them, their charity, their generosity, if we kiss their ass enough, they might just find some change in the couch, <clears throat> couch cushions that could fund our schools. It's, it's really, yeah. it's wild to me. I mean, to say Alabama doesn't have a Disney. Okay, this is the same Disney that's laying off thousands of workers right. that is, uh, you know, stalled in contract negotiations with the Disney World employees down in Florida and is trying to deny them a well-earned pay raise. Um, you know, this is the same Disney, which while it's screwing over its workers is, you know, locked into this battle with their right wing government in Florida. Uh, it's just it, it just really to me, it shows how oftentimes liberals can identify some of the problems accurately. But when it comes to the next step of, okay, well, why? Or what do why we do next? Why and what to do, what's yeah, the solution? what's to be done. Yeah. What was the cause and what's the solution? It's in those areas where it really starts to fall apart. And, and Kyle <laughs> Whitmire, with all due respect, how... Did you come up with this? I would right. love to know. I mean, genuinely, yeah. I want to know. Do and you... we still have, you know, we still have respect for for your work. If you're listening, we still have respect yeah, for your absolutely. work. We just think that some of your I'm gonna keep, I'm gonna keep reading, <laughs> and uh, I'll probably keep getting pissed off when I see stuff like this. Because to me, if if you're a conservative <laughs> and you see this, doesn't this just sort of prove your the point that people have told you that you know the liberal media types are just snobs? They look down on you. I mean, I sense some of that condescension. You know, we just, if only Alabama had its own elites. Mm. You know, maybe maybe if we, Alabama had its own elites that and, could then go exploit Mississippi and Georgia and Tennessee. And that's what, and that's what we need our leadership to focus on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, and I guess there is some truth to that because, you know, if Jeff Bezos lived in Alabama, someone would have to clean his mansions. Someone would have to wash his yachts. Uh, I'm sure he would have plenty of maids and butlers uh, and other functionaries around him for his lifestyle of luxury. Uh, so I guess, you know, if that's what you aspire to, if that's your vision of the better world that's possible, um, okay. Yeah. But, to me, yeah, I thought that was an interesting contrast. You know, the, the right-wing media guy, and then you have the the liberal op-ed writer and and asking for this guy to exist right yeah like wanting this way, guy to exist uh, you want to know one of these guys jim walter yeah jim walter there you go yeah we had we had a we had a a, a version of of 
that. We had Jim Walter Energies, and we see how that's turned out. Okay, yeah. so I just I I got so frustrated seeing this, um, and it really you know. Like I said, it makes me question, like, what are you learning from some of this work that you're doing that is valuable, that is, you know, putting the story out there about the reality of Alabama and our model and our history and uh, to come to that conclusion. Bonkers. Blows my mind. So uh, speaking of the Gilded Era and uh, Rail Barons, um, you know, we've been we we talked last week to a rail worker about this train derailment in Ohio. And since that came out, uh, there have been like a dozen or more derailments, like since that happened 15 days ago or something. Like it's just every day there's like, oh, there's a new derailment. This one didn't have any toxic chemicals, but wow, that's weird that there's another derailment. And look, this one did have toxic chemicals. There was one that had toxic chemicals like in Texas or something, right? Not to the extent of the Ohio one, but still like Wow, that's weird. And then just yesterday, it started being circulating that like, oh, this actually happens all the damn time. This is actually a super common occurrence, trains derailing, uh, that there were, what was it that you said, Adam, 1,700 last year? Uh, I believe actually it's a 1,700 a year. Like that's, uh, I believe. That's like, like the, the common the, thing. The, the yeah. average is roughly That's wild. accidents per year. That's totally, totally wild. And um, so, of course, and, and, you know, national media, totally silent on it, uh, more or less. And conservative media was silent on it for about the first week and a half. And they've hooked on to a couple of stories that they think that they can go with to try to protect the bosses from, you know from being held accountable for this. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those, like, do you want to get attention for it? Because sometimes it's better that issues don't even get right. covered by, by some of this media. Because it's, yeah. like, do you want ignorance or do you want uh, misinformation? Right, yeah, false consciousness or something. Yeah, so let's see what uh, Tim Poole is saying about, about this derailment. All right, let me get this guy lined up here. Or County, North Carolina in early December. Damaging equipment in what local authorities called a targeted attack that cut off power to more than 45,000 people. So how is it that we are suggesting it is accidental? We have right here knowledge, direct knowledge, direct statements in the press. Extremist groups did attack our power grid. What about the train? Remember when It's Going Down, the far left extremist website? Gave instructions on how to derail trains. And now trains are derailing and they're full of chemicals and they're no, exploding. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I missed that. Trains derail, man. They really do. Yeah, you don't so know. That's said, correct. Is it a network of terrorists that are attacking our grid? And maybe. <laughs> but what can you <laughs> do with this information? Whether or not it's true is not Here's the what good matters. part, Adam. Though it does play a role. If it's true that there is a network of extremists sabotaging U.S. infrastructure, then, oh boy, I would argue that you should increase the amount of oh guns boy. in your possession. That would be bad. Now, is there a network of lizard people intentionally causing train accidents 
just to make Norfolk Southern look bad. Is it possible? <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's true or not. But you need more guns. That's the that. Could you imagine? That's the for twenty nine ninety nine <laughs> per month. I have an uh, annual subscription. You know. Twenty nine ninety nine per month or annual subscription of hmm, five hundred, and you could get the answers to those questions. There's a resolution. The resolution to the issue of trains derailing because of bad brakes and outdated infrastructure and uh, the, deregulation for six decades. Yeah. In the transportation uh, industry. How do you how do you fix that, Tim Pool, Mister Tim Pool? Well, uh, buy a gun. Buy a gun. That's his answer. Buy a gun. Buy a gun. That's, which is, which is, you know, like, I don't care. Buy a gun. Buy a gun. You know, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me, but that's, like, not the solution to this story. <laughs> uh, no. No, it's not. And uh, I really, this guy in particular, I really hate the way he, um, he spreads a lot of misinformation about uh, anti-fascists and uh, pretending as if there's this like shadowy cabal of terroristically inclined leftists out there uh, just committing all sorts of violence and, and mischief and sabotage. And I mean, it's just it's just disgusting because there are people out there who actually listen to this guy mm -hmm. and take him seriously. And, right. you know, there are people who probably walk away from his stuff thinking there really are like commies under the bed right you know like they're out there you know and that just oh it, it that you well, talk about uh, evil that's evil because it's this crazy. motherfucker knows he's lying to oh, people of course. he knows of course. he's bullshitting people and and getting money off of it and and confusing people and getting people riled up over bullshit and it just and the know. funny thing is, in the majority report covered this other clip, and maybe I should have pulled the other clip, but I, I didn't want to exactly cape the you know a lot of what they covered. Um, but there was another clip where he talked it. It was literally the same day. He was wearing the same clothes, the same beanie, the same story. But his conclusion was actually there's only there's like seventeen hundred trains that derail every year. Maybe people are just making too big of a too big of a fuss about this. People are losing their minds because of the media. You know, this isn't Chernobyl. The same day. Oh my God. The same so, day. Yeah, the media is making a big deal out of this, but oh by the way, it could be anti It could also be a domestic terrorist network, in which case you need to arm up immediately. No, no, not in which case you need to arm up. Whether or not it's true, you need to arm up. Right. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, yeah. Uh Infinite Content says, yes, there is a there is a network of extremists in the US causing derailments. They're called corporate rail owners. Indeed. Indeed. So uh so that's how those are kind of the dual tracks that that um uh that Tim Poole was taking. Charlie Kirk is more following Tucker Carlson's example. I didn't pull a clip from Tucker Carlson, but he went basically with this with this shtick too. Uh, so let's take a look at what Charlie Kirk is saying about uh, the train derailment. Not a single member of the Biden regime would dare to go to this portion of Ohio and breathe in the air because they know it's dangerous. They know that it is actively poisoning the citizens of eastern Ohio. So... Why is it that they come? Okay, just one moment. Shoulders. Stop there. Hold on. Yeah, me. Yeah, and they yeah. Say, this oh, is yeah, okay. Uh, whatever. It's very simple. It's because 
the war on white people continues. Ugh. Why would you care for the white working class vote? Yeah, well, we've... Yeah. Well, I was going to stop and say, like, okay, look, see here, this is a real issue. Right, yeah. But, I, I, he opens up trying to, you know, garner sympathy mm -hmm. and and portray himself as sympathetic to the people in this area who are legitimately being poisoned and dealing with inadequate government response. Um, yeah. Ugh. And then to yeah, let's pull let pull it back and let pull it back a little bit. Sure. Like fifteen seconds, and let's play that again. Portion of Ohio and breathe in the air because they know it's dangerous. They know that it is actively poisoning the citizens of Eastern Ohio. So why is it that they kind of shrug their shoulders and they say, ah, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. It's very simple. It's because the war on white people continues. Why would you care for the white working class voters in Eastern Ohio? You haven't cared about them in other reasons or other portions, and I will prove it to you. If this train derailment happened in downtown Atlanta, in the densely populated black neighborhoods, this would be the number one news story. It would be Flint Water Crisis 2.0. There would be clamoring and activism and talks for reparations. Okay, I'm gonna stop there. Flint Water Crisis. Uh, it's still not fixed. Like what the hell? I mean, it, does anyone think that like that was a benefit for for Democrats? I, I mean, I'm. Oof. Uh, it's crazy. And Buddha Judge, meanwhile, is out there saying, "Listen, while this derailment is happening, while the act of poisoning is happening, he's saying, look, the problem is that workers are too white." Play cut forty-two. We have heard way too many stories from generations past of infrastructure where you got a, a neighborhood, often a neighborhood of color, that finally sees the project come to them, but everyone in the hard hats on that project looking like, uh, uh, you know, doing, doing the good paying jobs, don't look like they came from anywhere near the neighborhood. Right. You can build community wealth that will help close wealth ga gaps in this country if we can tear down those barriers. But that happens at the delivery level. So Buttigieg is out talking about how workers are too white. For the last couple of years, I have been warning about this crusade against white people, and people shrug their shoulders and say, oh, Charlie, why does that matter? I could tell you why it matters. When there's a crisis now and the leaders hate working class whites, they're not going to scramble to save your life. They'll lie to you and tell you to go back home while you're poisoned. That's insane. It is. I mean, and, and the, it's you can see the division uh, being fostered right there because the truth is that, of course, politicians of both party both parties don't give a damn about working class people, whether you're white right. or black or, or not. Uh, Mr. Anderson in the in the comments brought up Jackson, Mississippi. Yep. Water situation there's not fixed. Oh wait, hold on, means. hold on, Adam. You must be mistaken because Charlie Kirk just told me that whenever bad things happen to black people, they get fixed automatically, and that and not only do they get fixed, they get talks of reparations. That's what Charlie Kirk told me. Meanwhile, in reality, <laughs> in reality, 
Uh, not only has it not been fixed in Jackson, the Mississippi legislature is trying to essentially gut the in, the power of Jackson, Mississippi, as a as a city. Uh, I mean, and I I don't know all the details yet. I've got a couple of things to look into on that, but uh, Mississippi, the white power structure in Mississippi is seizing on this crisis to make things worse. But yeah, to hear Charlie Kirk tell it, well, it was a bunch of black folks, so surely the Democrats are going to show up and fix everything and hand out checks to everybody and be on the TV every day doing this. It's, I mean, so I don't know. removed from reality. Right, yeah. It's I just mean, objectively false. This is a narrative that is objectively, demonstrably, provably false. And even the thing and about... And divisive. Even the thing about Pete. Uh, right. As much as I... I mean, and I have real, real vitriol for Pete. I, I mean, there are things about that man that just disgust me. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was definitely a disingenuous interpretation of his comments right. uh granted pete was being disingenuous but that's because literally everything that comes out of his mouth is disingenuous right. but he didn't say that was the problem um so yeah it's just it's just really disgusting and right. uh, there again and there that's a con- i mean that's this. a conservative that's a conservative thing that people who you know, people who build our communities should be from our, uh, you know, it should be when we create wealth, the people from our communities are the ones that are that are building that wealth and that are gaining from that wealth. I mean, local jobs is like a big thing. Right, absolutely. Conserv- and, and like the idea that, that, oh, Pete's saying it, so it must be bad. I mean, it's so like, and, and we have sympathy for the argument about how like this diversity, equity and inclusion and all this bullshit, you know, diversity stuff from management is just as bullshit. It's just stuff to paper over divisions, uh, to paper over worker organizing to get you to shut up. Right. And we have a lot of sympathy for that. And we actually just talked to Julia Rock a couple of weeks ago, uh, who reported on the National Restaurant Association, the other NRA, just talked about how they actually said, hey, you know what you should do to get your, uh, you know, dumb workers to get their fill of justice. You should create sustainability committees. You should create diversity committees so that they can feel empowered. Like, there's a critique there. There's a real critique there. But the real critique actually reveals, like, who the people pulling the strings are. And it's the capitalists. And he doesn't want you to know that it's the capitalists. It's the people that are writing checks to fund his show that are behind the scenes, that are pushing all of this nonsense on you. He wants you to think that it's black people. Right. I mean, you have this, like, neoliberal identity politics and both the... The, the Democrats and Republicans both use it. They're just two yeah. sides of that coin, right? They right. both they respond to each other. They build off each other and they just pile bullshit on top of each other. Um, yeah, I, I think I think those people do real, real harm. You know, Absolutely. the Charlie Kirks of the world, I think, are doing legitimate harm to people uh, by poisoning our intellectual environment. He's a fucking intellectual polluter. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, 
we we've got one more story. I do want to get to it. Um, Austin in the chat mentioned <clears throat> before the show wraps. We didn't have any guests today, so my voice is starting to go out. Austin mentioned in the chat in the chat uh, before the show wraps. I want to plug the week of action planned for the week of March fourth to the eleventh at the Wilani Forest in Atlanta. Uh, definitely check that out. Stop cop city stuff. Um, yeah, we haven't really yeah. talked about it on the show, but um, uh, there's been some really good reporting going on. Um, I know uh, Means Morning News just this week had a dispatch from Atlanta. Uh, oh, cool. So, so yeah, check that out. Um, just, you know, I have tremendous respect for the folks in Atlanta who have been fighting to prevent Cop City, uh, who've been fighting for justice for their slain comrade. Uh, you know, it's... it's um, it's a it's a big deal, and it's you know the cop city that they're building in Atlanta is going to conceivably train militarized police forces all over the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not just local to Atlanta, though it is, you know, I think a real slap in the face to that city. Definitely. So yeah, thanks Austin for for bringing that up. So um, the next story that I wanted to talk about is that uh, Tesla workers in Buffalo announced that they were unionizing with a new independent union, uh, Tesla Workers United. Very cool stuff. It's actually being headed up. I said it's an independent union. Maybe it's actually associated with Workers United. Yeah, it it is through Workers United. Because it's headed up by some of the same people that are that kicked off the Starbucks Workers United stuff. Uh, they're they're helping this campaign. <clears throat> so they um, they announced a campaign. They filed for an election, and literally the next day, dozens of workers, many of whom were organizers, most all of whom I think were organizers, most of them, uh, were fired by Tesla, by Elon's company, in retaliation for their union organizing. Uh, and this is, you know, this is like the real free speech stuff right here, right? I mean, this is, they were fired, and so they're going to be out of work for months at the least, you know, until they get reinstated by the NLRB, presumably, hopefully. But the best case scenario for them right now is that they're out of work for months, right? Why are they out of work for months? Because... They have the wrong opinion about unions. And they're doing stuff about that. That's why. Not because they were bad employees. Not because they're, you know, whatever, whatever. It was because they're organizing. (coughs) And if any of these people that have been parading around trumpeting Elon as the champion of free speech and and all this stuff, if any of them even gave like half a damn about this, they would be calling him out. If they gave half a damn about actual free speech, about working people, about working people actually having the ability to speak freely, to freely assemble and associate and protest and and, uh, uh, all of this stuff, they would be calling him out but they're not they're ignoring it while covering for him right well you know keep in mind jacob when they talk about free speech what they mean is the right to say uh slurs on their favorite internet websites or the right to have your you know your right-wing book on amazon.com um <clears throat> that's free speech yeah i mean that's because these speech. are the same people who are pulling books out of libraries and schools um 
it it's uh, it's pretty egregious to fire the folks the very next day. Uh, yeah. That I found a little shocking that they would be that blatant. Um, my understanding is Tesla has already put out a statement saying something to the effect of we were already going to fire these people. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with, you know, it's just, oh, yeah, we were we were going to do a Total 4% reduction in workforce. And just yeah. so happens that we uh, rolled up a bunch of organizers and, and union supporters <clears throat> while uh, doing this literally the day after the campaign launches. Totally so. a coincidence. But this isn't like this isn't uncommon and, and we're gonna get to this when we play this clip or or this is this is gonna be relevant when you listen to Taibi on Joe Rogan's show talking about how this is all coming out of nowhere. For some people, the issue with Elon Musk is coming out of nowhere. No doubt, no doubts. For some people this is coming out of nowhere and they didn't care until he became like you know, part of the national conversation and they were told because they're, you know, because they're good liberals or whatever, they should not like him because he's problematic or whatever. But like, there have been real issues with Elon Musk forever as a boss. And some of these, he's fired union organizers in his plants before. He's also been sued for racism in his place. Yeah, we've. I, I distinctly remember uh, the more perfect union <clears throat> reporting about yeah. the racism out in California. Here's just a couple of things from an LA Times article that I pulled up. A single mother was excited to land a job at Tesla. About three years in, she was fired, she said, after complaining that black workers were frequently called the N-word on the assembly line. A former refinery worker couldn't wait to get into green energy. She said so, uh, she soon found herself and other black workers assigned to the most arduous tasks in a corner of the factory co-workers called the plantation. An army veteran was pl- promoted to a fleet manager job. He said he was fired after he complained that his boss called him and two black co-workers monkeys. <clears throat> Their accounts expand on allegations in a February 9th lawsuit filed by the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing on behalf of more than 4,000 current and former black workers at the world's most valuable car company. The largest racial discrimination suit ever brought by the state by the number of workers affected. This is not new. This is not new. And and it shouldn't be surprising, you know, because... He, he comes out of a family with, that, you know, <laughs> owned, he gets it, he gets owned, it a, honestly. owned an apartheid South Africa emerald mine, right? So, you know, he gets it honestly, certainly. Uh, but, and the thing about Matt Taibbi is that he knows that. He knows that there are real critiques against Elon Musk that is not new. And uh, Matt Leck from Left Reckoning has pointed out, has retweeted a tweet from Matt Taibbi from 2018, from five years ago, where he was about to go on the Michael Brooks show. And he said, I'm about to go on the Michael Brooks show. They're really tearing Elon Musk a new one in a flattering way, as if this is a good thing that they're tearing Elon Musk a new one. So he knows this. He knows that there are real critiques, that Elon Musk is actually really bad. (coughs) He's a boss. (laughs) And he has all of the bad things that go along with being a boss. But now that his bread is being buttered by Elon Musk, let's see what he has to say about him. Play that. 
it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. There's an amazing amount of resistance against him. And, you know, there's the, just the publicity campaign against him has been fascinating to watch. People go from thinking that Elon Musk is the savior that's bringing us these amazing electric cars and engineering new reusable rockets to he's an alt-right piece of shit who wants Donald Trump back in the office. And it's like, it's very wild. It, it, the, the, the speed with which they can sort of shuffle somebody into the Hitler of the Month Club yes. r- uh, routine, right? <laughs> like, you know, it, it, we've we've always done this with foreigners, you know, whether it's Noriega or Saddam Hussein or Milosevic or Assad or whatever it is. Like, we have a playbook for cranking out negative information about, uh, you know, foreigners who get in our way for whatever reason. But now we've we've kind of uh, refined that technique for domestic. I'm going to pause there to say so far, I don't necessarily disagree with that. But the question is like the who's the we, right? Um, yes, the, the U.S. intelligence agencies and and their, you know, friends in the press and, you know, the opinion makers, so to speak, have certainly done that when it comes to foreign leaders and other countries. But, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he's about to explain this, but am I getting the impression that, like, the same forces responsible for lying to us about Saddam Hussein are are now lying to us about Elon Musk being a bad guy? Yes. What the fuck? Yeah. Come on, Matt. People who are inconvenient, you know? I think they they did it with Trump, obviously. Um, You know, they try to do it with Tucker. Tucker Carlson with you, uh, you know, I mean, you, you got a taste of that for a few a few times. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Right. Uh, and then, you know, with with, e- with Elon, yeah, the, the, he went from being the guy who made electric cars sexy to like, you know, something to the right of Victor Orban in, in like <laughs> 10 seconds. It's, it's amazing. It is amazing. And the narrative is spread through progressive people. Well, they'll just say it now. It's like they've reached the memo, the memo's got to them, and then they just, I hear people in LA, I hear people that I know, like, oh, Elon's just so crazy. It's like, it was something happened to him. He went nuts and he's a right winger now. Like, how, what are you saying? Like, what, what examples do you have? Like, they don't have an example. They just have this narrative that reached them the signal. Like, Elon bad now. Oh, right. Elon bad now. Elon bad now. Elon bad now. I really am just so disappointed in, in Matt Taibbi to, to see how he has regressed over the years. Um, I mean, this is a, ga- a guy who, you know, has done some some writing I found valuable. He's someone who, you know, I thought was perfectly capable of, like, speaking truth to power, you know, and... Um, what do you, I mean, I, I don't get it. Like, may, I guess it's as simple as, as what you what you point out there, you know, the way his bread is buttered and we've seen Glenn Greenwald and mm. a lot of these other folks that were, you know, vaguely left-ish and maybe that's part of it is like these people never necessarily were, were principled uh, politically. They just happened to be um, on the outside looking in. Right. And, and um, you know, so and Matt Taibbi, who wrote eloquently about you know, like Goldman Sachs mm. and the role they played in destroying the global economy. I mean, Elon is is one of those people. 
right? right. I mean, he's he's one of these oligarchs, uh, and there's this you know this sort of cultural conflict, um, team red, team blue cultural mm-hmm. conflict that I think the Greenwalds and the Taibis like are sort of responding to more so than reality. Right. And, you know, I mean, like there's Cause certainly... like to hell with the liberal media. Like <laughs> right. I, I, I think those, there, a lot of the stuff they're saying about like Democrats and liberal media, it's not that it's not true. It's that I think they have become the mirror image of what they're opposing. Mm-hmm. They are just as obsessed with, you know, what's the discourse on Twitter and, you know, who's canceling who and, and that kind of shit and not actually uh, any sort of deeper, deeper analysis or deeper look at what's happening. And, you know, it's just, yeah, it's disappointing because I, I, I thought Taibi, well, I know he knows better. Yeah, it, it it's it's bizarre and it's bizarre to, you know, uh, you know, and I and I don't doubt that there are some people who just hear Elon bad and they say Elon bad and they don't really know why. But like Taibi knows why. Taibi knows why, and he knows that maybe some of the reasons that you know maybe some of the reasons aren't the best, but he knows the good reasons. Right. I mean, twenty years ago, there were people who were going around thinking, you know, George W. Bush, he sucked. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe they didn't know why. Maybe that was what they picked up. Or maybe it was even not live. Right. Yeah. Maybe it was even bad reasons. Like maybe they didn't like him because he had a like a Texas drawl or something. And that's a bad reason to not like somebody. But you still shouldn't like him. Right. And that's that's my point. Like Taibi would have known, of course. Right. There were people who were opposed to Bush for silliness or stupidity. But that doesn't change the fact that he was a man worth opposing. Okay, uh, and and just because uh, just because there is a liberal media who ostensibly opposes conservative figures, okay, like that doesn't mean that that's going to shape how I feel about those particular figures necessarily. Um, I am capable of recognizing the deficiencies and the propaganda within both a liberal media space and a right-wing media space, the way they play against each other, um, and the way their celebrities are elevated by one side and, you know, demonized by the other. Okay, well, I I just don't understand what he's trying to get at there. Um, It's not necessarily new either, but... You know, I just don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. Um, Yeah, there's liberal media. Yeah, there's conservative media. And yeah, it's a lot of entertainment and a lot of uh, nonsense. And are there people who jump on bandwagons? Sure. That doesn't change the material realities that Elon Musk is a billionaire oligarch. Right. And and like. And oppresses people and is a bad person, a bad factor in the equation I mean, of human life okay yeah, right. like all of humanity on this planet is Elon Musk really helping us is Jeff Bezos really helping us is Donald Trump really helping us right the I, I'm not interested in picking this team of billionaires versus that team of billionaires right and I I see Taibi going down that that same road like 
Yeah, we, you know, because you can see the bullshit on the liberal side creeping farther and farther away uh, towards that conservative side. Um, I'm just sad, sad. There's more, there's more, there's more to the world and thinking about the world than these two sides that are created by media. Sad, sad. But, you know, I guess, I guess some of these folks are playing that game. Even folks who have been legitimate uh, critics, you know, all these years, people have done good work. You know, there again, it's kind of like Whitmire, you know, he's, he's had good, good comments on the nature of power. Um, mm. And his solution is to uh, find our, our own folks. Yeah. To be find, in power. find, yeah. Find a billionaire that makes good memes. So. And I mean, so I, it's this, it's the same thing. And so I'm sure Taibi would not consider himself liberal, but I don't see how, um, he's got a liberal in there somewhere. Right. Yeah. I, I don't see how it's really any different. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us. We appreciate you listening. Uh, today was a little different. Uh, you know, I, I recognize that today we, you know, both kind of had some shit grinding our gears and, you know, <laughs> had some just some stuff to get off our chest um, and, you know, was not as structured or planned as normal. So I hope that, you know, if it wasn't for you today, understand that it's not necessarily like that every week um you know but i think most folks who are listening uh you probably can understand the situation and and um why we handled things the way we did but uh we'll be back to more regular programming that's for sure so yeah. i appreciate everybody who's uh tuned in appreciate everybody who's contributed to the fundraiser who's been sharing uh tvlr.fm slash expand tvlr.fm slash expand all right thanks everybody all power to the workers solidarity y'all